Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. This is Season 6, Episode 2, The Mayors and the Traders, covering Part 3 and Part 4 of the first book of the trilogy, Foundation. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge on this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I've only listened to the first book in the series. My name is Talia. I have read The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov, but this is my first time reading the Foundations trilogy, which I'm reading in pacing with the podcast. My name is Priya, and I'm also reading the book in pacing with the podcast. So I have only read up to um, this week's readings. And the only other book that I've read by Isaac, Isaac Asimov is iRobot. Other than that, this is a new work for me. Yeah, and based on Talia's suggestion, I also read uh, The Gods Themselves in between hey, the last congrats. episodes and enjoyed it. Um, and I also started, I read the first chapter of iRobot. I haven't finished it yet, though. We record it once every two weeks, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of downtime in between them. So I resisted the urge to read ahead. And all of us resisted the urge to watch the show, which came out in between the last podcast and this episode. The Apple TV show came out, and I believe all of us have resisted. I have, Dan has. How about you, Priya? Yes, I have resisted also. My husband said that he would watch it and then spoil me. And then I asked him, why would you do that? And he said, good point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I had a couple items for follow-up. Uh, just one issue that uh, someone um, named Gregory on Twitter pointed out to me is that we're there's some issues with the RSS feed, especially as it relates to dates um, for this podcast. So I found a bug in the in the code that I have to generate the the RSS feed and fixed it. So if anyone else is experiencing that, sorry, it should be fixed. Please let us know if you see any other problems. And we also got a shout out from Justin on Twitter, who said he really liked the podcast. And I, I saw in his link that he also has a YouTube channel with some Scala videos on it, which I thought was really cool. I don't know Scala myself, but I am interested in functional programming languages. Thanks again for your shout out. All right, well, let's jump into the summary for this episode. In ADFE, uh, 30 years after Sultan's last appearance, the space around Terminus has fractured into four kingdoms, and Seth Cermak and the newly formed Action Party demand that Hardin's only course of action is to resign because of his perceived inaction. Hardin recounts the events that have got him to this point, including Anacreon establishing bases on Terminus, but Hardin was able to engineer a political play working with the other three kingdoms to get Anacreon to abandon Terminus. Following that, Hardin established a new religion that shrouds nuclear power in mysticism, with the actual intent to limit knowledge and retain control. The prince regent of Anacreon, Venus, has captured an older imperial battlecruiser, and he now demands that Terminus fixes it. Despite protests, Hardin agrees to fix it and even names it after him. Hardin travels to Anacreon to witness King Leopold's coming-of-age ceremony. He tries to remain anonymous, but is spotted by Venus and taken to his chambers and arrested as a prisoner of war ahead of Anacreon's planned attack on Terminus. Despite his apparent predicament, Hardin remains unfazed. At the stroke of midnight, all the power in Anacreon goes out, and the king's ceremony is halted. And aboard the Venus, the religious element realizes that attacking Terminus is tantamount to an attack on their own religion and demands that Venus is arrested. Desperate, he demands that Hardin is executed by the guard, which they refute. And when he takes a weapon and tries to do it himself, Hardin is surrounded by a force field. Venus feels like there's no other option and turns the gun on himself. Back on Terminus, Hardin is hailed as a hero, and as he predicted, there was another message from Selden. Selden has also predicted that the crisis would come and be resolved by using spirituality to conquer the region, but warns that they do not grow overconfident and reminds them that there's a second foundation on the other side of the galaxy. 
In part four, a trader named Limar Panyats receives a message that his colleague Gorov has been arrested on Escone for illegally trading goods. This is further complicated by the fact that Gorov isn't just a trader, but is an agent of the Federation. Panyats meets with a Nisokian Grandmaster to negotiate a reprieve from Gorov's death penalty. The Grandmaster insinuates that he might be able to trade for Gorov, but does not tell him for what initially, but soon finds out that they only care about gold, to which Panyats is able to trade them gold from a transmitter that he built himself in exchange for Gorov's release. Panyats' next move is to talk to Farrell, the youngest member of the Asokian Council. He works out a deal in secret to trade the transmitter itself. Panyats exploits the fact that trading is punishable by death on the planet and shows Farrell a secret recording he had made, forcing him to pay for Panya's entire cargo full of trinkets designed to increase reliance on the Federation. So we're introduced to a bunch of new characters and we'll have Talia go over them. The characters are Johan Lee, the advisor to Hardin, Seth Sermak, leader of the Opposition Action Party, Ambassador Polly Verisoff, priest of Anacreon, Prince Regent Venus, advisor to the king, in command until the king comes of age. King Leopold I, King of Anacreon, 16 years old. Louis Bort, another member of the Action Party. Theo Apparat, head priest aboard the Weenus. King Lefkin, captain of the Weenus, son of the pre- Prince Regnant. Lamar Polnets, master trader. Eskel Gorov, master trader of the Foundation, sentenced to death on Ascone. Grandmaster, highest ranking of the Council of Elders and Farrell, youngest master of the elders on Ascone. Um, like we mentioned before, the it is a TV show that's happening that premiered in between our first episode and this one. And looks like people don't like it, or at least people on the, the Eyes of the Reddit don't like it, or mm-hmm. some people don't. There seems to be a lot of book reader kind of hate towards it. And looking at Rotten Tomatoes, doesn't have that much better score, 70%. Um, Rotten Tomatoes score, 69% audience score. So yeah, not great. You know, like I said, none of us have watched it, and I don't intend to watch it until after, at least after I've read this trilogy. From what I've heard, it only covers the first book, but I can't be sure that that's actually true. And one interesting thing that looking at the the cast list is that they recast Dornick and Hardin both as females. I think that's fine, but apparently, like from the little bit I read on the the Reddit, they kind of recast Hardin as like a rough and tumble kind of action adventure hero and you know his whole thing is like the violence is the the last refuge of the incompetent so mm-hmm. it's kind of weird they did that uh you guys have any thoughts on on the tv show i know you guys haven't watched it but i don't know if you've heard anything about it or well one thing gave me hope about the new tv show is that jared harris who is beloved to people who have watched hbo's chernobyl or amc's mad men where he played uh, the scientist and Lane Price, respectively, is cast as Harry Seldon. And I really like Lane Price. So I'm excited to yeah. watch that. <laughs> yeah, that casting seemed, I mean, like, yeah, he's, he's a great actor. It's strong um, casting, right? Yeah, but like, it's like, Seldon's not like a very prominent character. I mean, he's prominent in the fact that he's like important, like he's the most important character, but it's like, you don't, he's not around much, I right? Put like the... The, I put this in the show notes later, but I guess I can announce it now. I think he's a main character, Selden, because we can feel his frustration through the narrative. <laughs> we can't feel anyone else's as palpably. I adore Jared Harris, and he was incredible in Chernobyl, which is um, 
a show that I watched and then I went down a whole rabbit hole of like researching all these morbid things about radiation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think amazing. everyone did when that yeah. came. I, I did the amazing. same thing. Yeah, <laughs> so amazing. And I feel like it makes me wonder if like he is not going to be showing up as just like a memory or like a hologram or whatever, however he's being shown every 30 years and be more of like a main character. But I actually would like if he is because, I don't know, he seems like one of the strongest members of the cast along with Lee Pace, whose character we haven't met yet. So I'm not even going to look into that. Yeah, I looked over the cast list and it's like, I don't know most of these names. Like, I, you know, only like Dornick, Hardin, Selden. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was Lee Pace and Halton catch fire? I know we discussed this. I'm not sure if we discussed it online. Yes. (laughs) Yes, the main character, yeah. You cannot major in CS and not know Halton catch fire. (laughs) (laughs) Shade being thrown at you, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, even I watched it in bits and parts because i was forced to by the bits and bites nerd yeah exactly (laughs) i you know in in fairness like after you said that um i I did look for ways to watch it online it looks like it's not streaming anywhere so like i don't is it on netflix Mm. but nevertheless (laughs) none of us have watched the show which you wouldn't know because we've all been like voyeuristically peeping in on what other people (laughs) think about the show and it does seem that they are not huge fans is that fair is that what you guys have seen too yeah definitely i haven't even looked into it because i didn't want spoilers but rotten tomatoes is like gospel in this house so (laughs) if if the rotten tomatoes is at 70 percent right now that means that critic score or audience score what's gospel just all of it all of it all of it and if this means that i will actually be spared from spoilers because they probably won't even watch it so <laughs> that was a couple as of a couple of days ago so maybe it's got better but i don't think any new episodes came out since then i think only the first two are out as far as i know i mean you got to give the show a little time i guess you have to give it time yeah just like you have to give this book time Ooh, hot Still. take priya <laughs> <laughs> sorry guys all right. Well, speaking of, let's. I think let's get into this book. I think a lot of stuff happens, especially in well, both both parts, really. Um, and I think a lot of cool stuff happens. Like, I guess overall impressions of these two chapters. Of I'll, I'll go first, and I I really like them. You know, I'm in it for the space politics, and this is like a masterclass in space politics, and like the way Harden kind of controls things and engineers like this long, long, long plan of how he's gonna you know kind of manipulate the his situation. Like, Terminus is not in a great position. Just geographically in the the galaxy but he's able to engineer it with limited resources by just kind of instilling fear and spirituality and manipulating people and i really like it does this give anyone else um little fingers chaos is a ladder vibes like it gave me (laughs) because i was thinking like especially when he talks about how when he kind of mocks venus and Please forgive me if I can't get that name out without laughing. It is a very unfortunate name. But um, he uh, he talks about him being a man of direct action versus how Hardin himself kind of indirectly controls the outcome of events through actions that are committed by others, but they're committed in a fashion that adheres to the schemes and machinations that are put into play by Hardin. So. I don't know. It felt very um, little finger esque to me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, little little finger and, and Varys, you know, trying to control things around the around the realm. <laughs> 
with uh yeah like yeah indirectly forcing these these big actions right like the, all the events of the song of ice and fire happen because basically <laughs> those guys are engineering you know people getting getting murdered or or that kind of thing and so this is this is a little bit more subtle than that but it's actually also grander right they're controlling like multiple systems with uh Harden is controlling multiple systems with, with like his religion that he made up and this is the thing that was obvious to him was like how he's going to do it and uh yeah he did it and it seems really effective yeah totally it's like really interesting how it it's it's like first it's it's like playing the long game where you first have to turn it into how they set this section up where they establish for us very clearly that science has become a sort of um mythology and that has given rise to this mysticism around it, which then translates into a sort of religious, sort of almost cult-like following almost of these priests and how they control everything. And um, also there's there's this um, language has also reverted to antiquity. Like we see at some point, Harry Seldon is referred to as a prophet now rather than a psychohistorian. So yeah, it's like all these yeah. pieces are in play where you can... The lines are blurred, yeah. Yeah. Then you can have this scenario where um, the the citizens who are meant to be controlled by this faith that the leaders know is kind of like not really mystical or supernatural they still are able to like take power back because ultimately it's that true faith that wins which is actually like faith in like a false thing if that makes yeah. sense yeah it's a super interesting dynamic about i'm sure it's you know some kind of take on actual religion right like how the leaders know that it's there are isomoff's take on actual religion right the leaders know that it's fake but the 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 people believe it but because the people believe it they're able to assert control so they're not able to give up their religion so the populace the general populace like you know falls more and more in you know in, into believing this as as gospel right and they believe in a galactic spirit now and they have all these rules and they have these priests but it's all just a matter of control by the engineer by harden which i think is really fascinating that's why i thought it was interesting when you talked about a grander scale of control like little finger if you are familiar with the Song of Ice and Fire, is like, you know, controlling different systems and different political schemes in his world. But if you expand the scope of control to religion, there really is no limit. Like, it's infinite. You can talk about the heavens. You can talk about the beginning. You can talk about the end. So I thought it was really interesting that even in one part, we've segmented this podcast that, that we're doing the first book in three parts, but already by the second part, we're zooming out to such a grand sense of control. And I think that's a real tool from religion that, that that's what allows us to do that. Yeah. I mean, they had the religion in Song of Ice and Fire, the the seven, right? But like, it didn't seem like it was made up to assert control. Obviously, like the church asserted control different ways. So have but... you read Dune, Dan? Like, do you know the Bene Gesserit? I haven't. Ah, I haven't. you got to read Dune. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I hope my my, uh, my backlog is, is getting stacked. I'm sure Frank Herbert borrowed immensely from, you know, this book, but yeah, yeah. I would recommend. I mean, more and more, I think like most books seem to be, you know, pulling from here, right? Yeah, like Song of Ice and Fire must foundation. have, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, like I keep, um, I keep seeing more and more similarities to that book that I keep referencing, A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is like, 
now on I, my list I by like, the way priya yeah, yeah it's so it good <laughs> and it it seems to pluck ideas directly out of here where um you have this reversion back to antiquity and also simultaneously this commentary on science and religion wherein religion is presented as this way to simply make sense of the world when you don't have the scientific tools to make sense of natural phenomena so <laughs> and and the extent to which that can actually be used against people if you have a society in which there are people who have this knowledge of science who have completely sort of hoarded that scientific knowledge for themselves and kept the rest of the world shut off from it that they can wield science in a, in a way that it was never intended to be used it's really fascinating i love the verb wield because as someone who works in a tech field and i believe that the other co-host of this also does people tend in our field to write off religion as something that like weakens your political strength or weakens your ability. And something I love so much about the Dune series is how they just show how powerful religion is. Like it's mimetic, it's, you know, compulsory. It convinces people to change the course of their lives and their bloodlines. And the way that the Bene Gesserit use their religion is precisely the way that you're talking about Priya. Is like they think about, well, we'd like to have control of this system in the next couple hundred years. So why don't we send a missionary and plant the seeds of this prophecy? That way, when we send our next emissaries, they'll fulfill this prophecy that we set up. And I just think it's so delicious. Uh, and it's nice to see its roots being here in foundations. Yeah, that's such a good take. And that really makes me want to start reading Dune before the movie comes out. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really like religion and religion kind of pitted against science this way has like always fascinated me in literature and mm. like this this really kind of has a bit of a unique take on it because it's usually you see that religion becomes a replacement for science but um in this case it's being deliberately fed to people this way versus it just become coming out as a natural progression of not understanding it's like there is like a central authority that is imposing this upon other people, but they actually are not coming from a place of not understanding science themselves, but they're coming from a place of understanding mm. fully well mm. what science is, but they are then turning it into a religion to control people. And usually you look at science as a thing that will save you. But in this case, what if you don't have the tools to seek it out yourself? You know, I have one last comment on that. And then we can, you know, pull back to our summary of the chapters that we read. But the quote from the German physicist from the uh, 19th century is that the first gulp of the natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Yeah, I mean, usually religion also tries to help it helps people understand things they don't understand, you know, like death or, you know, how the world is created, that kind of stuff, things that they can't conceive of. In this case, like people used to know science, forgot how, how science worked after however many thousands of years it's been. And now the foundation does understand how science works. And now they're kind of shrouding in mysticism, like, oh, nuclear power, it's like a mystic force. And like King Leopold can float on his chair and have like this, this radiation halo around him <laughs> to, uh, to kind of show off to the, the populace. 
so it's a yeah it's a, it's a really interesting take and yeah like priya said like usually science and religion are showing is like pitted against each other uh -huh. but in this case like science is the religion <laughs> and i wonder like how much is going to more and more evolve into the just pure mysticism right like obviously they they totally made up the galactic spirit but like they're saying like, oh, like chair can move because of this mystic force, right? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see like how this plays out. But then even later in this chapter, in the section, the next part, we see another tack of how they're trying to maintain control, which is like to give them uh, gadgets basically to maintain control. We'll, we'll get there. The schemes to engineer control over the population is, is really interesting. What I find lacking so far is that normally you would see at this moment in time in a book with this sort of plot that there is like this drive to figure out the science right on the part of people who don't have the science and I'm not seeing that yet it seems like so far they've just been kind of wasting their time on politics mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily seem to be understanding that there is like there has to be like one mind that is like wait no this doesn't seem like a supernatural phenomenon this seems like a something that we can explain by you know understanding the way that nature works and having this aha moment but we don't really get a main character out of these so-called barbarian kingdoms and instead we are just kind of seeing them as barbarians because they don't seem to have a drive almost or to, not that they have it yet to get themselves out of their situation and that kind of reminds me of the quote that I think um, Hardin says this or it's it, it's it comes a bit earlier in this section where he says the galactic spirit helps those who help themselves mm. so yeah, that 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 help themselves attitude I haven't really seen yet in a way that's actually strategic on the part of these kingdoms that find themselves like under the foundation's foothold almost. I mean, obviously that would be a big big threat to the foundation. So I wonder if Hardin somehow engineered rules. I mean, like they you can see they have like the priests who only can only like study this stuff on on terminus itself right and like they they steal they do like basically a brain drain they like take out the smartest people off of the, the other world make them priests and then <laughs> either they take them terminus if, if they go, if they're like indoctrinated enough they send it back to their planet and you know, we, we have like the the priest who is on, on board the ship he's obviously some kind of he, he is a, a high priest right but he's he he's totally indoctrinated into the world that like terminus is the you know, basically Mecca for, for this new religion, right? And so like attack on Mecca would be attack on the religion, religion itself. And that's, you know, similar here. So it seems like Hardin's kind of built that into his plan to root out that descent before it can become a thing. By Hardin or Harry Selden built it into his plan? Well, yeah, I mean, you could say that Selden did it. <laughs> but mm -hmm. Hardin implemented it. <laughs> well, that's interesting because um, Harry Selden does at point at, at one point uh, in his conversation with uh, Verisov, and he says this thing about how even Selden's advanced psychology was limited. It could not handle too many independent variables. He couldn't work with individuals over any length of time any more than you could apply kinetic theory of gases to single molecules. He worked with mobs, populations of whole planets, and only blind mobs who do not possess foreknowledge of the result of their own actions. And I know that that quote is going to tie into 
<laughs> some other things later on that you guys want to talk about. But the reason I bring that up now is because he then later says that I'm also actually not supposed to be operating on any foreknowledge, but actually I have foreknowledge and I'm like trying to not act on that. But also he kind of is. So it's really interesting to see how he has put these things into play based off of what he knows of Selden's predictions. And then he's also trying to not let himself simultaneously be influenced by them. So it's, it's really weird. Like his, his, his whole plan is very complicated. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We have more examples of control as well. This is on the planet itself with Weena manipulating Leopold himself, right? Because Weena obviously wants to become, he's already Prince Regent of Anacreon, right? Um, But he wants to control even more. And it's insinuated that Mm -hmm. he even murdered like the old king. uh, And he's probably going to murder, or he's he's slowly murdering the new king as well. And yeah, like his, the chapter with him, like kind of whispering to Leopold, like, oh, you know, you should really, you know, why, why shouldn't you be ruling this? The Why should it be Terminus controlling this stuff? Shouldn't it be you? Is And that, that's how he engineers the whole, um, the attack on, on term or the, he, the attack he tried to make on Terminus. This whole chapter is about just control at different levels. Those who know will know, uh, uh, but this just, re- poor Leopold reminds me of um, Tommen from Game yeah. of Thrones <laughs> and how he has like, like literally zero control over anything and is just being jerked around by everybody else. <laughs> it reminds me of um, the, also uh, from, from Lord of the Rings with the, the, the king uh, being controlled by, uh, what's his name? Grima? I guess oh, that's a little yes. bit different. Yes, the one who whispers in his ear, right? Yeah, I forgot his last yeah. name. Uh, I guess it's a little bit different because he was actually like under kind of some kind of spell, right? It's a worm tongue. Worm tongue, yeah. Oh my god, I yeah. was gonna say that, but I was afraid that I was confusing it <laughs> with uh, worm tail from Harry Potter. So I was like, well, not that <laughs> I was like, this will be a, an embarrassing conflation of two worlds that I was very obsessed with. So. Our <laughs> listeners are very discerning. Legitimate fear. Yeah, but yeah, it's another example of like subordinates, like uh, a, a subordinates kind of trying to impose their will on on the king or the queen or the ruler of the kingdom, and actually being like the the kind of shadow leader, you know, the the chaining to the bush and that kind of stuff. Uh, do you want to talk about Selden's message? His second message um, didn't seem very helpful to me. It kind of only cautions against overconfidence, which can be a big thing if you're like prone to overconfidence. But he kind of just gives himself a pat on the back for predicting events accurately <laughs> up to this point, which he can't even verify at the time he's recording the message. So I don't really see the significance of his second message as much. I mean, it's probably just a reinforce that like he know he, he knows that this, this is going to be he knows the plan, right? He knows his predictions are right. Uh-huh. He doesn't want to give any foreknowledge of like what's going to happen, but he's just kind of showing up on on these these intervals, saying, "Hey, I'm right." By the way, continue with the plan. <laughs> know that there's going to be another. Know that there's going to be another crisis coming up at some point where there's going to be one option, uh, and know that it's going to be a like a Selden crisis. I mean, at this point, like if you're going to make a message every 30 years, like better be good. And if you're <laughs> going to cast Jared Harris to play you, like better be good, but nope. Well, I mean, it does reveal that there's a, or not a reveal, but like reminds people that like there's a second foundation, you know, and I know this is a bit of meta knowledge, but like the third book is called second foundation. So I'm sure it, it's probably an important, important point going on going forward. 
Dan, I'm sorry to spring this on you mid-podcast, but do you know if Asimov intended this to be a trilogy when he wrote it, or did he write it as standalone and then find success? I don't know. I mean, I know, the only thing I know is that he wrote, like, this book in, like, parts, like, it wasn't a book when it first came out. It was, like, just chap. the each part was, like, a, an article in a magazine. That's how science fiction used to have to survive. It seems to me like yeah. it was always written with the expectation of the future, but... Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think he wanted to continue. You know, these are like ideas that they had. Um, mm-hmm. th- that's my impression anyway. And he put in the magazines and hoping people would like them and they want to continue it. But I don't, as far as I know, like trilogies weren't like a thing back then. You know, now it's like just kind of a, a take, you know, the, a given. Right, I and, take it for granted. In literary. Yeah. Not everything's like a trilogy or a, a series or whatever. But back then it's just like, well, hopefully people like the story. And I think when people did like the story, he liked them into a single book. And then maybe he had ideas for the second two. And then throughout his life, he kept making more. I even read the fourth book in a trilogy, which the author dedicated to everyone who wrote into me to write me the definition of a trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like so understood that like the idea is working. So I'm going to make more and like buy (laughs) the actual definition. Like we'll just create more. So I guess we sort of conflate Asimov's success. I know we've been referencing a lot of other science fiction books that we've read and also from last season, but we have to really give credit to the fact that he really was one of the first and it was pioneering a lot of these efforts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he changed it to like sort of, you know, from a, a, from the perception of like sort of pulpy kind of just, yeah, action mm-hmm. kind of generic, yeah, green, green, little green men, you know, uh, yeah. uh, science fiction into like this like grand political drama uh, that spans the entire galaxy, is this, at least for this book. Yeah, speaking of grand political drama, um, diligent listeners of the podcast might know that before I became a full time podcaster, I actually got a degree in economics. And uh, that granted me the knowledge to know that Paul Krugman, one of the most prominent economists, uh, economists. In fact, any economist that you can think of will probably trace their profession back to Isaac Asimov. <laughs> you really, <laughs> you should look up any prominent economist and look up Google search Asimov. They really think that what they're doing is in the mission of psychohistory. The whole idea that they could predict the future and alter the future um, is a whole driving force. Uh, you can't predict one household, but you can predict 10,000 households. Like Priya was saying, you can't predict an individual molecule, but you can predict whole mobs. And that's the whole guiding force of economic professions. So uh, you can look at that in The Guardian on Twitter. I promise this will hold true for much more than what you thought. And you want me to read the, the tweet? Yeah, read the tweet, Dan. So yeah, Krugman also had a tweet that, that Talia found. It says, uh, P.S. The Foundation Novels were what got me into economics. I wanted to be a psychohistorian saving galactic civilization. Econ was as close as I can get. Yeah, that definitely makes sense, right? People, and especially at his level, think about mm-hmm. like the, the macro scale of you know how the U.S. economy works, and like then and then they're interested in like individual business or a person, right? They're individual. They're more interested in like how the economy does at like a super macro level. Yeah, so, it's like emotional reassurance on the most macro level. Like if you're worried about the future economics might be the major for you psychohistory might be the answer for you you can predict and possibly you're lucky even alter history although i suppose we discussed a lot last episode about free will and i think this chapter or this part also draws a lot of that into discussion like do we have a 
definitive answer on free will yet, I would say no, because a lot of Selden's predictions are still coming true, whether or not he's a prophet. Yeah, and then like you have the Krugman sort of like the the prophet role also. Like when he says something, like the markets move, like all the all his minions in the <laughs> Wall Street, like will will sell off. You know, like oh, the, and the Fed's gonna you know make some proclamation. <laughs> They're and gonna boom. gonna sell yeah, off. Coin to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to part four then. Uh, part four talks about the it's you know the traders, and now we're shifting main characters again. Uh, we don't have Harden in this part, uh, but we have Panyats, mm. who is a trader and seems to be his colleague or another people, another person in the the guild. I think they call it uh, is is in trouble uh, for for selling trinkets or what do they call them? Um, gadgets. I, I forgot. What they- uh, I, f- I forgot what they call them, but like they're they're selling basically like little things that are powered by by nuclear power um, to kind of assert control across the 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 federation or the across the the galaxy, right? I thought the problem wasn't what he was selling; it was the fact that he was making his living by commerce. Like the whole idea of him being a merchant or a trader was like abhorrent. Well, it seems like the in that world on Ascone is that like selling goods. Uh, seem to be a big a big problem yeah, exactly. <laughs> or trading That's trading goods I mean. yeah but i mean it seems like it's like it's been a successful tactic you know bunch of worlds but like now they're running into this one problem world and gorov specifically you know, he's an agent of of the federation not like a trader you got you got himself in the trouble and got sentenced to death and it seems like even after he got out of his predicament he's gonna do it again <laughs> like he was like, <laughs> like uh, you know like it didn't work, you know, I got into trouble this time, but like, what am I going to do? Like, that's, that's my role is to try to, you know, push, push these trinkets on people. So it's interesting that this is another means of control, um, mm-hmm. a different tack they're taking. This was like a really comical section in my, in my opinion, because it was given like a whole part unto itself. But if mm. you think about it, not much actually happens over these six chapters, <laughs> but like it's it's very intriguing. Like I'm not necessarily like saying that to throw shade at this part, but like it, it's very funny how like this gets like its own section because basically you're seeing sort of tactics that are used that are kind of a page taken out of a Hardin's book, and just that's how they kind of. Um, use this grand master's faith in a sense against him because they're coming from a position of higher scientific knowledge and um i love how the section begins and ends with that very famous quote from hardin which is never let your sense of morals prevent you from doing what's right talia can jump in here to share what she found um on goodreads about that quote (laughs) right i could not resist looking up that quote um because it's it struck out to me when i read it and then i looked it up and of course other people have highlighted it what i did not anticipate was just how wide people's interest in this quote was from genres such as love life Death, inspiration, humor, philosophy, God, <laughs> truth, <laughs> romance, happiness, poetry, wisdom, faith, each of these with more than 10,000 per uh, citation. So clearly this quote is very impactful for many people reading Foundations. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite is the romance tag. It's such a romantic quote. It is very yeah. romantic. <laughs> 
<laughs> I wonder how that's used in a romantic context, but yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, if you're really trying to impress someone by quoting Asimov, you might use that in a romantic scenario. <laughs> that's true, Priya. That's a very good point. I'm glad that it caught you too, because I know I looked it up as soon as I read it and was immediately reminded, like, yeah, a hundred thousand other people have noticed that this quote is worth citing. You know, I actually kind of hate when, because um, I'm reading it on, on Kindle, and mm. it tells you when it's a popularly highlighted quote, and I kind of hate that they do that, because then I'm like, oh, well, like, I don't even want to highlight it now if everyone's highlighting it. I'm not sure if we covered this on the last season, on the last episode, rather, but listeners should know that I am reading a book from like the 1960s which my dad gave to me which trust me no one has highlighted because if someone highlighted the whole book would fall apart (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's the advantage you have there where where it's not like telling you like hey everyone highlights this so maybe you should highlight it too no no one tells me but when I read it on the subway people do take out books like to challenge me Oh, really? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. A lot of 20-year-olds read Infinite Jest in front of me after I take out my book. <laughs> That's so funny. I can totally <laughs> see that happening on the New York City subway. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading on uh, Apple eBooks. That's how I was like. I always on my laptop, and that's generally mm-hmm. how I, I read them. I have the physical copy, too, but it's easier to highlight. So, But Apple eBooks does not have all the fancy social networking capability of... Uh, it's just you, Priya. You're the only one reminded yeah. of how other people see the book. <laughs> damn it <laughs> hey this I is mean, a clean episode i mean i knew there would be drawbacks to using a product by amazon but whatever <laughs> but yeah, i think you're right about like the tone of this chapter being much different exactly. from the other one yeah i think like it this one feels like a lot more lighthearted. you know panya seems more of like a like a han solo kind of character that's how i thought of him <laughs> right uh-huh, like yeah that, yeah. that checks out yeah, and uh, you know he, he's going to this planet, and he's kind of like playing the the barbaric uh, religious guys, <laughs> like mm-hmm. but like oh yeah, have some have some gold, and like and then like they he fools him, but he fools the other the other elder with like his uh, 3D recording <laughs> of him <laughs> accepting the transmuter, and able to get you know able to trade his entire cargo hold for it, and like kind of saves the day or saves his day of uh, of always keeping his perfect record of getting rid of his cargo. And I would say because this part doesn't bear the burden of holding too much plot, it's allowed to be whatever the author wants. So we can find humor in it. We can find like philosophical, romantic quotes in it. I posted about Reddit uh, very recently about this chapter because I just finished reading it. And people do agree. They evaluate this book, the whole series, in between cerebral and talky. So everyone pretty much agrees there's not a ton of plot that's carried either in this part, which is what I referenced, or even in the whole mm. series. And as you remember from the beginning of the show, none of the hosts really have a lot of knowledge about the whole series. So we'll all discover how true that is. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler. Oh, yeah. Well, so far, all I've been reading is conversations happening between characters. There's like mm-hmm. very little action. There well, is... someone shot someone with a weird little force, fun- force field gun. Yeah. That's true, but I almost missed that because of all the talking. <laughs> yeah, I almost missed that. Yeah, when, when I listened to the audiobook, I got the impression that like it was like no plot. It was just like really like just two people talking all the time. But I think reading it, that there's a there's a fair bit of plot. Like in part three, you know, a lot of stuff happens. I mean, it all happens in 
context of conversations usually. But, you know, like there's a big grand thing that happened, you know, like the coming of age ceremony is happening. There's a, the, the try in, in the chamber, the, the confrontation there, the stuff on the ship, like things are happening in this book. And like, uh, even in the fourth part here, you know, we have trade happening and, you know, guy getting saved, but they all kind of happen in the context of conversations usually. So that's maybe why it seems it's a bit more plot thin, but like thinking back on it, like there's a lot of stuff that happens, like, you know, in these first four parts. I will say I really enjoyed this, but I am someone who really enjoys waiting for Godot. So cerebral and conversation, not a big problem for me. What what really holds this together for me is the the running thread of commentary about religion. And I know that mm. a lot of this is kind of can almost sit as cliched to the modern reader. But I think given the time when Asimov was writing, I think these ideas may have felt newer than they feel now, because I think a lot of works of science fiction or just literature in general that have focused on science and religion have sort of already kind of really beaten this to a pulp. But I think at that time, these ideas must have been a bit revolutionary that um, coming back to the quote about morals, a lot of the time, um, religions have very set ideas about what is right and what is wrong. And morality is always on the side of what is right. But this quote sort of turns that on its head and says, what you think is moral is not always what's right. And yes. so well done. that's where you have to think beyond your set beliefs and try to always seek out an understanding of what's right versus what's necessarily deemed to be more because morality seems to be more subjective than what's right that's what this quote is implying to me and again that's a commentary on how religions view morality and then there's um this other really nice moment that speaks to the nature of religion and i believe it i think Ponyat says this he he will cheerfully cut your throat if it suits him but he will hesitate to endanger <laughs> the welfare of your immaterial and problematical soul That's to um, Con in a nutshell <laughs> is that really <laughs> I, I i think that that really struck a chord with me because it's always like you see that a lot with um very fervently religious people that they often tend to have a little less regard for the, and I don't want to turn this into a political commentary on what's happening right now in our real world, but <laughs> there's often a lot more emphasis on the, the, the more insubstantial idea, ideas around life and souls versus lives that are actually living and breathing right now. So yeah, and you know, this book came out in like the what the or these articles came out like the forties, right? And I think the book came mm -hmm. out in the fifties. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's right in the the heart of the the McCarthyism era, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're like trying to root out communists for their anti anti religion stance, right? And I and love so, reading it in that context, like Dan is saying. Yeah. I I don't remember hearing that this book was very controversial, but I can see how it would have. Maybe it's just overlooked by by people because it's science fiction listeners, and please tell us because we are woefully uninformed yeah i mean but it seems like it would be right like the all the yeah, yeah all the religious stuff is very thinly veiled to me like it seems very 
very <laughs> like allegorical to what religion actually does, uh, you know, or what some people think a religion would do is controlling the masses through made up uh, text, right? Like that's that's what a lot of people think religion is. So this is not that far from that idea, right? Uh, and so it seems like this would, in this time period that it was written, would be very controversial and I don't know, I guess controversial is the best word I can think of to to the people reading it, right? Like, you know, a, a similar age me, like reading this in like the 1940s have been like, whoa, people are talking about this. That, yeah, it, it's crazy to me that like it didn't get more controversy if if it didn't. I didn't, I have never read anything that it had. I think the people reading it probably couldn't get over the name Weenus, so they didn't. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was hoping we'd get through this episode without bringing that up because I keep giggling. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, Eisenhoff himself was like a Russian immigrant, right? So, yeah, Possibly. that's even lending, yeah, even lending more towards, uh, yeah, like being more controversial and like wow. being blacklisted or or what have you, red listed. But glad he wasn't, and glad <laughs> continued. So we can continue to. I'm glad all the books weren't burned during his time, so we can continue to read it today because I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying this this book and me too. Uh, like I said, even even more than I did when I listened to it. And I listened to it, and I guess I was kind of zoning in and out but like reading it it's like it's it, I, i've been loving like reading it and i really want to read ahead but i want to stick to the the podcast schedule so uh you know i've been reading other stuff by asimov, by asimov uh to try to satiate that you won't even that, spoil uh, yourself on the book you're reading that's so pure <laughs> gotta yeah dedicate dedicate to the my religion of non-spoilers that's good dedication i like that <laughs> Okay, well, anything else you guys want to talk about in regards to this part or this book? I think it was a lighthearted, fun podcast because it was a lighthearted, fun part. And I'm really looking forward to wrapping it up. Except for the parts where we talked about religion. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yeah, see. it's it's a kind of interesting mix of like, yeah, religion and uh, yeah, lighthearted adventure kind of stuff. So yeah, it, I'm interested to see like how different in tone the different chapters are going forward i you know i know what happens i i kind of remember what happens the next the next part um i don't remember the tone of it or the specifics but i haven't read anything else past that tune in next episode (laughs) but yeah i'm interested to see if like the tone continually changes or if we start getting uh more more characters that are uh, besides selden that kind of continue it throughout yeah i'm interested to know but yeah, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, release pronunciation guides, and all the other stuff we put on the website. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And join us next time for the end of Foundation, Season 6, Episode 3, The Merchant Princes, covering Part 5 of Foundation by Isaac Asimov. <laughs>